Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Again, that's Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well, and it's good to see you, and happy Mother's Day. Uh, With that said, let's pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Exodus has been very exciting for us, for me especially. I've been learning, even as I preach, which shows you how much uh, I need Jesus, just as much as anybody else. I preached about anger, and then right after, I almost got angry, and I was like, oh, I need to listen to the sermon again, so I listened to myself on podcast. But I can't do it at the same speed. I don't don't like listening to myself, and I said, oh, it's one and a half times the speed. And so I would listen to it again. I love listening to our old sermons again, especially when another one of our pastors is preaching. And um, I would tell Pastor Jun I listened to his sermon three times. 
And, um, you know, I'm just really blessed that people can come together, prepare in prayer, and it really, it's really a, a process that you go over and over and over. And if you have one week to prepare, it's just every day. Um, and then if it's three weeks, it's still every day. <laughs> and so it's just a wonderful process that God puts through um, his servants and that we all get to share and really enjoy his word together. And today we are on Exodus 3. Exodus 3 is so packed with so much good stuff. We're going to try to get to the big stuff, but I want to say that we can't get through everything, but we'll do the best we can. And it starts out like this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, and then he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, which is like the back side of the wilderness. The reason why they say it is like the east is the front, so the west is the back. So he was a shepherd. And there's all this conjecture from scholars and um, intellectuals thinking, oh, you know what? At, in this place at that time, most people were minors. Moses must have been a minor, but no, he was a shepherd. And we see all these things taking place. And he comes to the mountain of God. And then there's a fire in this bush, and it's burning. Uh, I went to Egypt once, and when I went, I was driving with my team, because it was mission trip. I was driving with my team, and I saw a tree on fire, just this one lone tree. And I was psyched. That was, like, so amazing to me. And I just stopped and went, oh, fire, that tree's burning. And then... My Egyptian friends were like, okay. And then I didn't get it. But apparently it's just as a common day natural thing for trees to just spontaneously combust into flame. Because it's so hot and dry and arid there. And then because it's so hot, sometimes trees just combust into fire by themselves. But I was like, yeah, this is Moses. Moses. We got to go. What if it's God? And I was just so excited. And the Egyptians were just like, "Mm, yeah, you're weird. And then I remember even giving a sermon to the kids in Egypt. And I would say, oh, I want to tell you about this guy. His name is Moses. Don't you? Do you guys know who Moses is? Raise your hand. And none of the Egyptian kids raised their hands. So I was like, are you Christian? Is this a church? But that was weird. Anyway, um, So there's this fire, but the fire itself wouldn't have really surprised Moses now that you know this fact, and it didn't, right? He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and it says, yet it was not consumed. That was what drew Moses' attention. So there's this fire that's happening, and this bush or tree is on fire, and the bush isn't going away. Like, nothing is getting consumed. And he said, you know what? I need to see this great sight. Because there's one thing that we need to understand about fire. Fire has to consume something. That's what fire does. That's what fire is. Fire consumes. And this fire is there, but the bush isn't being consumed. So you have to start wondering. This is actually really deep. And we can go really far into it. And I hope you're going deep into it in your small groups Right? When you said, what did, wh- why would God choose, of all the things that he could have done, why would God specifically choose this? And we start thinking, and we see, oh my goodness, I actually know where this is headed because I saw Prince of Egypt or Ten Commandments. I kind of see the picture. 
or I read Exodus through the 100-day Bible reading, and fire needs to consume something because that's what fire is. But in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 12, it says that God is a consuming fire. Consuming fire. Fire consumes and all the pictures of the fire that God is, even if it's a pillar of fire, leads the way, but it consumes and destroys the enemies. But if the fire is here, what would it consume? Fire consumes everything. That's not fire. Fire consumes everything. That's why when there's a blaze in California, what can you do? but evacuate your house. And it's a horrible picture. It's terrifying. It's saddening, especially when people lose their homes through these fires and things can just spark because it's so hot and dry. There's no water. And the fire would just lick up everything. When God is a consuming fire, when we hear that, now you should start seeing a picture. What does it mean that God is a consuming fire? What does the fire consume? Everything that's not fire. God is a holy God. So what would a holy fire consume? Everything that's not holy. In 2013, there's this really great song. It's called In Christ Alone. It's by Stuart Townend and also Keith Getty. They wrote this song together. It's, um, it's, it's called In Christ Alone. And then there's this part uh, in the song. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Till on that cross where Jesus died. Right? You guys remember that song? And uh, the Peace USA in 2013 really wanted to put this in their hymnal. Um, and I, I speak about the Peace USA a lot. I'm just going to give you a heads up, especially if you're listening online. It's because we were part of it for like 17 years. Um, and so, you know, we're just very involved with all of this. Uh, the Presbyterian Committee on Congregational Songs said they wanted actually to publish this in Christ alone because it's such a powerful song. But they wanted to remove that line, the stanza. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change it to the love of God was magnified. This is all real. This is all real. And they wanted to change, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. To, to on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And the copyright holders declined this request. They said, after a lot of, you know, we thought about it, we actually want to keep the wrath of God was satisfied. And then a lot of discussion, debate. It was a huge debate, especially online. And they voted, and the committee voted and failed to reach that two-thirds majority that is the threshold to put this song in the hymnal. So that's why... In the Presbyterian hymnal, you don't have um, in Christ alone. And there was this huge debate. Why do we want to get rid of the wrath of God? Why do we not want to preach about hell? 
and why do we want to get away from this? I've been reading a lot of what people are saying, of course. People write books on it. And people want to really get away from this, this talk about wrath and hell. That was like 80s talk, fire and brimstone. And then, you know, we start to realize, wait, wait, wait. Of all the prophets who talked about hell the most, it was Jesus. Jesus talked about fire and hell the more, most, more than anybody else. It's important that we understand this. And then um, what in the Bible shows this, um, Romans 3, Rome, uh, 1 John 1, 2, I'll talk about propitiation. Propitiation is about the wrath of God being satisfied. It literally means that. And so the arguments were this, especially the people arguing against, like, we can't have the wrath of God in a hymnal. The argument was this. The whole song is so conservative. Uh, what's the big deal of taking this one out? And I, I was thinking, wow, this is a real argument. The whole song is so conservative. Why can't we just take this one part out? That literally was the pervading argument. Think about what they're arguing, saying all of this is biblical. That's literally what this is. There's so much the song, so much Bible in it. Let's just take this out. That's what they were saying. And to me, that was insane. I was like, what is going on? And it's like, you know what? John Stott talks about it, propitiation, the wrath of God. And then people will respond. That's why I don't like John Stott. It's like, what? Who are you? <laughs> and so there was, there is this real big averseness to wrath because we don't want hell. We don't want hell. But the truth of the matter is that God is a consuming fire and that's what we have to recognize. There's a reason why God starts out this whole process. Remember last week we said, now God's going to move. When we say, when God's going to move, something's big, big is going to, when, when we say God remembered, that means God's about to move. Something big is going to happen. And boom, fire happens. So that's something we need to keep in mind. This is significant, everyone. This is significant that we know what this means. And fire consumes everything. That is not fire. God's holiness will consume everything that is not holy. And think about that. And you think about it. Even Pentecost, which we celebrate next week. May 20th is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came down, right? And everybody started speaking in tongues and that kind of thing. Pentecost literally means 50. And so... It's 50 days after Easter. That's May 20th. So next week we sell Pentecost. But tongues of fire would come down. That was the picture that was shown. And the Holy Spirit would fill these disciples with, the, with, um, with, with, with himself. Fire would come down. And guess what? They weren't consumed. Something to think about. Fire is coming. Who and what will it consume? And all things not holy. And this is the picture that we see right from the beginning. And in verse 4 it goes on, When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of this bush. Moses, Moses, here I am. Then he said, Don't come near. Take your sandals off for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the father God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
There are a lot of things to learn about just this passage, this section here. But number one is God is the one who calls us. Moses, Moses. Moses didn't go, God, God, or Yahweh, Yahweh. He said, Moses, Moses. In John 15, 16, Jesus himself says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Ephesians 1, 4 says, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Man, these puzzle pieces should be just falling together for all of you right now. In 1 Peter sec, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it says, you are a chosen people. God chooses us and highlights his gracious character, not our merit, but his gracious character. God's choice is something that gives him pleasure and brings him praise. That's what Ephesians 1 says. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. God chooses you. God chose you. He called you by name Moses Moses and number two it says don't come near take your sandals off what well, number two what we learn about this part is that God chooses us yes but God dictates how we worship God dictates how we worship him we don't dictate how we get to worship God God dictates how we worship him you know today is Mother's Day I would like to ask each and every one of you, what did you get for your mom? But I won't. Um, I'll just look in your eyes. And if you're smiling, you definitely didn't get anything. Shame on you. Shame on you. But what did you get for your mom? The answer, this, this is the answer. What do you get for your mother on Mother's Day? The answer is anything she wants. Honestly, that's the answer. Anything she wants. Uh, my wife had a conversation. Oh, what should we do for both of our mothers? And I, and I said, you know, traditionally I just go and have a meal and if it's because of Sunday I might be busy and we just have it on another day um, that doesn't fly with Esther's mom so I said oh you know what okay fine today I'll make sure that the evening is free and then we'll go have dinner with your mom should I get flowers and Esther said yes but we should get her a gift it's like why do we have to get her a gift because she expects a gift well, gift is the dinner and flowers. And I'm just thinking right now as my bank account is, like the balance is like ticking down. It's Mother's Day. Her birthday was like two months ago. What's going on? <laughs> anyway, um, so whatever she wants. So, yes, she expects a gift. So got her a scarf. Um, what do you get your mom on Mother's Day? The answer is whatever she wants. And I was thinking about it. This is such a crude example. I, and I apologize to all the mothers in advance. I, I respect you so much because I can't fully relate, but I can a little bit relate like, like a kid could relate with their parents in that sense. It's like, imagine I was carrying a backpack, right? This is a terrible example. Now you know where I'm going with this. This is a horrible example. But imagine I'm carrying a backpack for nine months. I can't do it for a day. After a few hours, like, this backpack is heavy. Ugh, it's off. It's on the floor. I'll tend to it later. But it's way worse than that. I, I wouldn't know personally, but I can imagine. And one, imagine carrying a backpack for nine months. But one of us actually carried two backpacks for nine months. So that was pretty crazy. Um, 
But what do we do when we say we're coming here to worship God? That's the big question. On Sundays, we gather together to worship God. Who dictates how we worship God? God dictates how we worship him. We don't dictate it however we want. You know what, today, I just want to take off my shoes. I'm going to put it up because that's what God wants. That's not how we worship God. God dictates, that's what reformed worship is all about. That's why we are reformed Christians. We want to follow what scripture teaches us about worship, the wisdom behind it, the attitude behind it, the heart that God wants. We don't just willy-nilly come up with things and we think that's good and we just put it on our own. There are nuances that I put into this service so that we can, I can teach you all. You know, there's exactly seven prayers that we pray in every Sunday service, seven. If you start counting, you count seven. And times we have communion, we have ten. We add three more. Well, there's a reason why I, I orchestrated it that way because we want to we say these are all on purpose because these are, these are things that we want to, we see in the Bible, but we want to glorify God. And that's why we put these things in our elements of service. And I'm not saying if you don't have seven prayers or ten prayers, it's a bad worship. I'm not. But I'm saying has the prayer and has our worship been guided by Scripture? And then if not, what has it been guided by? But God dictates how we worship. And three, in this portion, God shows us who he is. So number one. God calls us. He chooses us. Number two, God dictates how we worship. And number three, God shows us who he is. Who is he? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What is he showing and telling Moses? He's saying, God, who I am, I am able to keep my covenant and my word. I do what I say and say what I do. You heard about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? That's me. When I say something, I'm going to do it. You know about the promise I gave them? I am that God. So here we go. The same promise. Here we go. In verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them to the place uh, bring them, sorry, up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The promise is given. And what's the promise? I'm going to bring you to a place flowing with milk and honey. The three points here again, flowing. Flowing is not just there will be adequate milk and honey. Flowing means gushing. When you're gushing with something, you're gushing with compliments. When I see someone that I respect, so let's say just I'm going to pick a random name. Let's say a, a, a guy named Tim Keller comes. I'm going to be gushing with compliments. Do you guys know? Who, anyway, I'm going to be gushing with compliments because I know this person. I really respect. There is an overflow. But if someone gets cut deeply, what do we say? Oh, my goodness. The blood is gushing. Gushing means an overflow, an excess. An excess of what is there. Sometimes it's too much. 
That's what it really means. Flowing. So much milk. What does that mean? That means you must have so much livestock to have that milk. It's not just going to come out of rocks. So it means you're going to have a lot of livestock. So many bees. You're going to have so much honey. Flowing with milk and honey. You know, there is a big scare about honeybees like becoming more and more uh, uh, just not there. They might be extinct. Um, and people are wondering why. And then we've, we, we start to figure out there's, there's actually a lot of reasons why. And one of the reasons is we are having less and less biodiversity in our agriculture, meaning there are less and less different kinds of plants. And that, that is one of the factors that's leading to the honeybee, the demise of the honeybee population. But so many bees that you have so much honey means there must be so much biodiversity, so much agriculture rich in crops. Flowing is a very important word that we can't just skip by. Oh, milk and honey. But milk itself represents, number two, represents a superior quality, a richness of taste and not just taste of nourishment. And honey represents sweetness. So we see the goodness and the promise that God is giving his people is both superior nourishment and sweetness, pleasantry, good things. This is the promise. And not just that, but flowing. And finally, a lot of uh, Jewish rabbis and a lot of people that have been studying this passage point out that Honey and milk both share a paradoxical quality. Honey is kosher, meaning it's in the Bible, you can eat it. But bees, you can't eat, right? So it's not kosher. So honey comes out from, honey, which is kosher, comes out from something that's not kosher. Milk is kosher, and yet there are multiple times in the Old Testament where you can't cook milk with a calf or it's, you know, meat. You can't put it together. So that's not kosher. So we see all these, this is kosher, this is paradoxical, this is kosher comes out from a non-kosher thing. And people are quick to, uh, not quick, but people start to see that, hey, the goodness of God, the promises of God, often comes from places where you least expect it. The goodness of God and his promise oftentimes come from places where you least expect it. And we were going to move on. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You know, Moses asks the question, who am I? Who am I? That question is basically saying, I don't got what it takes. I know who I am. I am limited. Who am I? And this is a question of no confidence. I can't do it. You know, this huge, this, this building is a huge undertaking. And a lot of the times, the session, we, the reason why we ask for prayer is that's basically what we think we're thinking. Who am I? This is just this alone is huge. If Moses goes and sees 
the undertaking that God is going to place on him, saying, you're going to free my people. I'm going to use you to free my people. And he goes, who am I? But eventually, he changes that question from who am I to who are you? Who am I changes to who are you? Who am I to lead these people out of Egypt? And after God says, I will be with you, Moses, then who are you? That's the question. That's an important question for us. We need to know. I know that I have limitations. I know that I am finite, that there's a finitude in me that can't complete everything that even I promise. You know, when you get married, you promise to love your spouse. So I promise to love my wife. And that is not easy. There are times when mistakes are made. There are times when I become like Moses and I want to murder. No, that's not right, right? I'm just kidding. No, uh, totally don't tell her. Uh, she, she's not going to listen to this. But there are times when you get filled with rage and then you backtrack and be like, whoa, I am not keeping that promise. I need to. So I know my finitude. And then knowing my finitude and you go into, let's say, even covenant marriage, this is something that you're saying I'm going to keep before God. How are you going to keep that? How are you going to, you know, if you really think about it, really think about it, look at what the Bible says, what a husband and wife is. I know maybe in today's secular society, you don't even want to, like the Bible is so old, but if you think about it, like this is really, this is deep, profound, powerful, but it's really heavy. You know, husbands, if you're a husband here, God has charged you to love your wife. And if you're not a husband, then you're a husband to be, unless you're called to, you know, singleness, which is cool. Talk to me after. Um, but you are called to love your wife like Jesus loves the church. And if you go into that thinking, yeah, pff, easy, it's like, what? Do you know what Jesus did? Do you know every waking hour what he did for the church while he was in this earth? He was homeless. He didn't know when his next meal would come. He didn't know where he would sleep. He put his head, he would put his head on a rock to sleep. That's how much he loved and second. Not only that, but after his ministry, they would kill him, torture him, beat him, spit on him, mock him, put a bag over his head, hit him and say, prophesy, who hit you? That's how much he loved the church, and that's the command for husbands to love their wives. Love your wives just as Jesus loved the church. And you're going to go into thinking, Psh, easy. It should be crushing. How can you do that? So that's why the question is so important. If God is commanding me to do something, ah, my question, my automatically, my response is, who am I? Who am I? But this is God's promise. I'm going to be with you. And that's why the question, then who are you? It's important. You're going to be with me. Who are you? And God answers, I am who I am. I am who I am. God is sovereign. That means it's only God can decide who 
he is, what he wants, what he wants to be. But none of us can. No one except God. Let me give you an example. I am Eugene. My mother gave me that name. I hated it growing up because uh, it's a great name now. I know there are two other Eugenes here. It, you guys have a re very cool name. Um, I will not be naming, uh, you know, my son Eugene Jr., though. I'm not going to put him through that. Anyway, but uh, when I was growing up, I said, why did you name me Eugene? You know, there's so many cooler, there's so many cooler names out there, like David. You know, I like, had five friends that were David in church. And then, like, Paul. I had another five friends named Paul. And, um, you know, why can't I have one of those cool names? And then she said, well, I like the name Eugene. But that's it. There's no great meaning behind Eugene. She just liked how it sounded. She's like, yeah. And so when my sister was born, she, she named her Eunice. She likes a lot of use. I don't know. Uh, but so, but my mother gave me that name. She gave it to me. And because she gave it to me, it's significant. But it's also humbling. Because I can't name myself. It's this incredible feeling to know, and it's heavy to know that actually it's freeing. That I didn't have to name myself. And then someone above me did it. Someone with more wisdom. Someone that loved me more. Someone with more knowledge. Even if my name was something ridiculous like P. I don't know what it is. Even if my name was P, I know that there was a reason behind it. And that alone gives the name P meaning. But this is not the case with God. No one names God because God is the beginning. No one is before him and no one will come after him. God is who he is and he gets to define that for himself because he is God. Because he is God. We do not. We are finite. Some of us in this world today, we may be a little mistaken thinking that we can that there's fluidity in all things that who we are. This is not true because we are not God. But don't you see the meaning and the, the reasoning behind why we want so much fluidity in all the things that we think that we can choose and want to be, who we get to be with, who I define who myself is, is because don't I want to play God? That's the reasoning behind it. It's not about social rights or justice and all these things. It's about I get to choose who I am because I want to be God. What should we should realize, especially in Mother's Day, is that I am finite. Someone even had to give me a name. But this is not the case with God. No one names God because he is the beginning and he is the end. And what I need to realize is I am not God. I can't decide who I want to be. And if I did, it would be absolutely crushing. If I did, I would be crushed. And that's the truth. Who am I? Not God. But who are you? And God says, I am who I am. The response then is, what you're saying is, you can. God is saying, I can. And his promises, he is responding by saying, I can 
and I will. You know, I can't guarantee anything in this life. If you learn anything, even about statistics, is there's always a statistical chance of something else. There's no 100% chance except death, right? There's something like, that I can't even guarantee that I will finish this message. I could have a heart attack and stroke and that there is a chance that that might happen. I did eat two slices of pizza and like a half a pound of ground beef and a cup of white rice and coffee with milk. And this is just one meal. So there, there is that chance. The chance is there. And I can't guarantee even that. But who can guarantee God can? I can't guarantee anything, but God can. And this is the God who promises Moses and saying, this is my people and I am the one. I am the one that will lead you into this land that is flowing with milk and honey. But God is also a consuming fire. And we are not holy. And we are not God. In fact, we are so sinful that we can't even guarantee a moment without sin. Listen to what I'm saying. We are so sinful that we can't guarantee that we could have a moment without sin. We are utterly at the mercy of this all-consuming fire. But then something incredible happens. The great I am. This something incredible happens. The great I am takes on a name. And his name is Emmanuel. His name is Jesus. The unlimitable becomes limited. The infinite takes on flesh. The unboundable gets bound into time. And he does what is impossible with man. He lives the perfect life we needed to live to be holy. Then imputes it to us by dying on the cross for our sins. His name is Jesus. And he is Emmanuel. And Peter says this in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not hold him. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is Lord. And the Lord calls you now. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. God calls us to him, the great I am. Praise be to God. Let's pray. What can we say, God? We are blown away by your grace, by your mercy by your incredible love for us. Instead of being consumed by the all-consuming fire, you have given us sonship, adoption, heirs with Christ the King. And we thank you, O oh God, for this incredible, incredible Let's take this time to reflect and pray on the word that we've been given now. Is there anything 
that the Holy Spirit is now directing you to do, to give up to the Lord. Perhaps you haven't even opened the door fully to Him. And know this, it is God who calls you now and calls you by name, Moses, Moses. And if you open the door, He will come in and eat with you. And you will eat with Him. Don't hold any area of your life back and open the door to our Lord Jesus Christ. Receive Him as your Savior. And He is mighty to save because He's the great I Am. What is it in your life that you might be holding back? What are you so afraid of? And know this, His gentle voice calls you now by name. And so call out to Him. Let's pray.